Hi, everyone. My name is Tejas Shaw, and I am an immigration attorney based in Chicago. And I'm Kalpana Pelibotla. And like Tejas, I too am an immigration attorney based out of the San Francisco Bay Area. In this podcast series, we will be discussing the big issues in U.S. immigration today and the historical roots of those issues. As part of this series, we are going to be digging into immigration law, the U.S. Constitution, and the trends in migration to the United States. We hope that through this process, we will leave you with a better understanding of immigration law today and its impact on our nation and our democracy. So for today's episode, we're going to be discussing presidential authority to regulate immigration to the U.S. and to bar certain groups of immigrants. We will be taking a deep dive into the laws that are the basis for the president's executive authority over immigration and recent Supreme Court cases that establish precedent for executive authority. Ultimately, through this discussion, we hope to answer a question that has been at the forefront of our minds for the last four years. Can the president really do that? This is especially relevant given President Trump's proclamations barring immigrants in the wake of COVID-19 in 2020. While President Trump may ultimately be judged to have taken some of the most restrictionist actions against immigrants among modern presidents, his unilateral actions are worth examining since they have implications for future presidencies. In order to talk about presidential authority, we have to talk about the law. So let's start by setting up the framework. First, Congress, as the legislative branch, writes our laws. And in this vein, Congress is vested with the sole authority to write our immigration laws. Second, the president, as the head of the executive branch, is responsible for enforcing our laws. And that comes from Article 2 of the Constitution, which sets forth the scope of presidential power. Once Congress writes the laws, the executive branch essentially writes the regulations that enforce those laws. And finally, there's the courts, or our judicial branch. They determine whether the actions by the president and the laws enacted by Congress are constitutional. With respect to barring the entrance of immigrants to the United States, the Constitution does not provide any explicit authority to the president. So you may be wondering, where does this authority come from? Well, it actually comes from Congress, who gave this authority to the president in Section 212F of the Immigration and Nationality Act. So today, we're going to start by exploring some of President Trump's actions, which arise from Section 212F of the Immigration and Nationality Act. And we're also going to explore whether the president's actions are authorized by that law and, well, whether they're consistent with the actions of previous presidents. So we decided to start with this topic as we believe that it animates so much of what has happened in the last four years in the world of immigration and the issues that our clients are dealing with on a daily basis. By many standards, President Trump has probably been the most active in modern history in suspending significant chunks of U.S. immigration. So let's get right into it. Let's look at a few notable examples. The president took office with a stated aim to bar Muslim immigrants. Donald J. Trump is calling for a total and complete shutdown of Muslims entering the United States until our country's representatives can figure out what the hell is going on. And he attempted to do so with his first two travel bans. While his first two travel vans were eventually unsuccessful, 
the Supreme Court in 2018 upheld the third version of the travel ban, commonly known as Travel Ban 3.0. This ban barred foreign nationals from primarily Muslim-majority countries. The bar applied to Iran, Libya, Syria, Yemen, and Somalia, and then two non-Muslim-majority countries, Venezuela and North Korea. And then a little over a year later, in January of 2020, President Trump further expanded the travel ban to six additional countries, namely Nigeria, Eritrea, Sudan, Tanzania, Kyrgyzstan, and Myanmar. That ban is sometimes referred to as Travel Ban 4.0. Then COVID-19 happened in 2020, and the president placed health-related restrictions on the entry of immigrants from China, the UK, Iran, Brazil, and the Schengen region. And after that, beginning in April 2020, he turned from purely country-specific limitations to deny admission to whole classes of immigrants. That's right, Tejas. A little over one month into the pandemic, on April 22, 2020, President Trump suspended entry of certain family members of U.S. citizens and lawful permanent residents, something that had never been done before by any other president. And then two months later, President Trump followed up this ban by temporarily barring certain non-immigrant workers such as skilled workers, teachers, and executives and managers of multinational corporations. President Trump considered further bars, which ultimately did not go very far, but nonetheless could have had a dramatic impact. The president tweeted on July 16, 2020, that he intended to bar the entry of Chinese nationals affiliated with the Communist Party. Just to provide a sense of perspective, somebody quoted this proposed ban as akin to the Chinese government suspending the entry of all Republicans because the Chinese government disliked President Trump's policies. Given the broad sweep of these recent presidential proclamations, some of our listeners may be wondering whether these actions were allowed by the law. Certainly, they raise questions as to whether these actions are consistent with certain democratic notions of our country, such as whether so much power should be invested in a single individual, even a president. What comparisons, Professor Carlin, can we make between kings that the framers were afraid of and the president's conduct today? So kings could do no wrong because the king's word was law. And contrary to what President Trump has said, Article 2 does not give him the power to do anything he wants. And I think while we may not be able to address all of this in this particular podcast, the rise of executive power goes well beyond immigration law, as well as this president. It really began in the 20th century, beginning with President Teddy Roosevelt, and then later with President Franklin Roosevelt during the Great Depression and World War II. But let's get back to today. President Trump claims that he indeed has the power to take these sweeping actions based upon Section 212F of the Immigration and Nationality Act. Tejas, why don't you tease out that section for us? Sure. So essentially, Section 212F states that the president can bar the entry of any foreign nationals that he deems would be detrimental to our national interest, and he may do so by proclamation. This means he can bar specific individuals and entire classes of foreign nationals, and he can place additional restrictions as he deems necessary. And all of this is within the framework of the president determining that it is in our national interest to take such actions. So let's pause for a second and talk about proclamations in general. Typically, presidential proclamations have fallen into two camps, ceremonial or substantive. 
In fact, the vast majority are ceremonial, usually designating specific observances or celebrating national holidays. Some notable ones include Memorial Day, Veterans Day, and Martin Luther King Jr. Day. In 1983, President Ronald Reagan signed the proclamation for Martin Luther King Jr. Day. In doing so, President Reagan acknowledged the grave injustices of racial discrimination. Here's President Reagan describing the significance of this proclamation. Now, our nation has decided to honor Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. by setting aside a day each year to remember him and the just cause he stood for. We've made historic strides since Rosa Parks refused to go to the back of the bus. As a democratic people, we can take pride in the knowledge that we Americans recognized a grave injustice and took action to correct it. And we should remember that in too far too many countries, people like Dr. King never have the opportunity to speak out at all. But traces of bigotry still mar America. So each year on Martin Luther King Day, let us not only recall Dr. King, but rededicate ourselves to the commandments he believed in and sought to live every day. And the substantive proclamations, which is what we are talking about, can sometimes have significant historic and legal impact. Probably the most famous and impactful substantive proclamation that comes to mind is the Emancipation Proclamation. Whereas on the 22nd day of September, A.D. 1862, a proclamation was issued by the President of the United States containing, among other things, the following, to wit, that on the first day of January, A.D. 1863, all persons held as slaves within any state or designated part of a state, the people whereof shall then be in rebellion against the United States, shall be then, thenceforward, and forever free. Now that we have a context for proclamations in general, Let's get back to the explicit authority to issue a proclamation barring foreign nationals under Section 212F. In particular, Tejas, can you walk us through how this section has been most recently interpreted by the U.S. Supreme Court? The Honorable, the Chief Justice, and the Associate Justices of the Supreme Court of the United States. Oh, yay, oh, yay, oh, yay. All persons having business before the Honorable, the Supreme Court of the United States, are admonished to draw near and give their attention, for the Court is now sitting. God save the United States and this Honorable Court. In 2018, the U.S. Supreme Court concluded that Travel Ban 3.0 was justified in the Trump v. Hawaii case and engaged in a lengthy discussion about the meaning of Section 212F of the Immigration and Nationality Act. And stepping back a bit, while Congress writes the laws, it's the Supreme Court that is called upon to interpret them. And that's precisely what the Supreme Court did in interpreting whether Section 212F authorized Travel Ban 3.0. Notably, and this may very well explain the decision in a nutshell, the Supreme Court concluded that Section 212F exudes deference to the president in every clause. Now, those are the exact words that John Roberts, the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, used in his opinion. This meant that in that case, the president had complete authority to exclude foreign nationals that he deemed detrimental to the interests of the United States. Exudes deference. The court is using pretty strong language there. And as I understand that language, 
the Supreme Court was stating that we shouldn't second-guess the president. But the court nonetheless acknowledged that it must still check the president's power against the U.S. Constitution, which is a higher authority beyond a single section of U.S. immigration law. Yes. So there are checks to the extent that there may be claims under the Equal Protection Clause, the Due Process Clause, or other clauses within the Constitution. But the executive can overcome those claims based on the court's decision if there is a, quote-unquote, rational basis for the exercise of the executive, meaning the president's authority. So what rational basis means is that the president can arguably overcome a claim that his proclamation violates the Constitution if it can be demonstrated that the proclamation is rationally related to a legitimate government interest. And I think what's implicit here is this notion that the president is supposed to take an executive action after due consideration and not just based upon a whim, or for that matter, an unconstitutional pretext. However, rational basis review does not allow the court to evaluate whether the president has fully considered all options and arguably allows for a post hoc rationalization. Further, Tejas, I think it is worth noting that part of what the Supreme Court was really interested in was giving the president deference in order to be able to protect our national sovereignty. And the court found in particular that foreign nationals do not have a constitutional right to entry. But at the same time, the president's authority to protect our national sovereignty must still be weighed against whether the denial of a visa burdens the constitutional rights of a U.S. citizen, for example. Yes, but while that's true, Kalpana, the Supreme Court has also given the president extreme deference, even in the inquiry, if the president's immigration bar is facially legitimate. And for this they actually cited an older case from as far back as 1972, Klein v. Mandel, which we will refer to as the Mandel case going forward. Right, Tejas. But before we get into talking about the Mandel case, I do want to note that the Supreme Court in Trump v. Hawaii did go through the exercise of looking behind the face of the proclamation to apply at least somewhat of a rational basis review and still reach the conclusion that Travel Ban 3.0 did have a rational basis with its stated objectives of protecting the country and improving our vetting processes. It's helpful at this point to look at some of the prior presidential proclamations that were cited by the plaintiffs in comparison to Travel Ban 3.0. The plaintiffs argued that Travel Ban 3.0 went far beyond previous proclamations. For example, they cited President Carter's response to the Iran hostage crisis In that circumstance, the U.S. Embassy in Tehran was attacked and over 50 Americans were held hostage for over a year. In response, President Carter issued various executive orders, including one barring Iranians seeking to enter the U.S. on temporary visas. We continue to face a grave situation in Iran where our embassy has been seized and more than 60 American citizens continue to be held as hostages in an attempt to force unacceptable demands on our country. The plaintiffs also cited President Reagan's suspension of immigration from Cuba. But again, in that case, Cuba had made the first move by suspending an immigration agreement between the U.S. and Cuba. Thus, in response to this action by Cuba, President Reagan suspended Cuban government officials and members of the Communist Party of Cuba from entering the United States. In fact, Justice Kennedy specifically addressed the breadth of President Trump's proclamation 
compared to Carter and Reagan, and he inquired. If you compare this proclamation to the Reagan and the Carter proclamations, which I think were one or two sentences, this is longer than any proclamation that I've seen in this particular area. The court still determined, though, that a president's authority was not bound to only circumstances where the U.S. was specifically engaged in political conflict. And for that, the court cited President Obama's suspension of certain Russian nationals due to Russia's annexation of Crimea and its use of force in Ukraine. The court also cited President Clinton's suspension of Sudanese government and military personnel, where President Clinton had acted by citing foreign policy interests based upon Sudan's refusal to comply with a United Nations resolution. In both President Obama's case and that of President Clinton's, we were not in a direct political conflict, though we may have disagreed with what Russia and the Sudanese government were doing. Thus, I'm not sure if these distinctions that the court drew are as wide-reaching as Travel Ban 3.0, because in Travel Ban 3.0, President Trump barred more than governmental actors and more than individuals with certain interests that might conflict with ours. And instead, he barred nationals from countries where we were not in direct political conflict or imminent threat of war. But let's put that aside and get back to the Mandel case. Tejas, what was the Mandel case about? In short summary, this case was about a self-professed revolutionary Belgian Marxist who was denied an application to enter the U.S. in the late 1960s and early 1970s to deliver lectures at several universities because of concerns about his beliefs. Mr. Mandel had previously entered the U.S. temporarily twice in the 1960s, and the dispute between the First Amendment right of scholars who invited Mr. Mandel to the U.S. and the president's authority to control who is allowed to enter the U.S. eventually ended up before the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court ultimately sided with the federal government and concluded that in essence, the First Amendment was essentially irrelevant to the issue. The Supreme Court also concluded that the executive branch had presented a bona fide explanation for its decision to refuse Mr. Mandel admission to the United States. Perhaps most telling in terms of parallels to the present, was the dissenting opinion by Justice Thurgood Marshall, the first African-American Supreme Court justice. Mr. Friedman, if we follow this language in jail, unfettered discretion, what are we here in this case for? Well, we're in this case because, Mr. Justice, the district court... Well, if it's unfettered, why the court shouldn't be involved with it at all, I should assume. But because the district court has uh, struck down... That's, that's your position. That's the district position. court could do nothing. Justice Marshall argued that the government had no standing to interfere with free discussion and therefore seemed to adopt a theory that the First Amendment was applicable here. He also took issue with the precedent of a facially legitimate and bona fide reason by speculating whether the Attorney General had truthfully stated his real reasons for barring Mandel from the United States. One thing that is important in the Mandel case and potential parallels to Travel Ban 3.0 is the context in which it arose. Mandel was set in 1972 when the Vietnam War was winding down and containment of communism was still a major political issue. Similarly, the actions at issue in the Travel Ban 3.0 case appear to target a minority group in the United States whom the president had demonized through his prior words. Arguably, the source of the president's authority over immigration control is premised in national sovereignty 
and derives from the immense powers that have traditionally been afforded to U.S. presidents during wartime. This is especially the case during World War I and World War II, for example, as we were talking about earlier, when executive powers seem to increase dramatically. To that point, let's talk about the dissenting opinion by Justice Sonia Sotomayor in Trump v. Hawaii. Justice Sotomayor referenced the infamous Korematsu v. U.S. case and described the court's holding as comparable and equally troubling. As a reminder, Korematsu arises out of the internment of Japanese Americans during World War II. Quoting Justice Sotomayor, the court in Korematsu gave a pass to an odious, gravely injurious racial classification authorized by an executive order. As here, the government invoked an ill-defined national security threat to justify an exclusionary policy of sweeping proportion. Yes, as Justice Sotomayor points out, it certainly seems as though American history has multiple examples of courts exercising deference to the president on issues of immigration, even where such decisions such as Japanese internment, which was at issue in Korematsu, are viewed with regret decades later. For example, the majority opinion in Trump v. Hawaii made no attempt to defend Korematsu and instead went to great pains to distinguish the Korematsu decision from Travel Ban 3.0 by pointing out that the travel ban involved the admission of those outside the United States, whereas the Korematsu decision involved the rights of Americans in the United States who were simply of Japanese descent. It still seems like we ended up with two starkly different views. As Justice Sotomayor suggests, Travel Ban 3.0 is essentially a Korematsu 2.0, or it may be something entirely different, as suggested by Chief Justice Roberts. Regardless of whether or not this is Korematsu again in a different form, Travel Ban 3.0 cements the broad scope of the president's authority to regulate who gets to enter the U.S. and who does not. Now, we started out this podcast with a discussion of the recent presidential proclamations as a result of COVID-19. We've learned that the president does have authority to bar immigrants under the Immigration and Nationality Act, but that there may be constitutional limitations to the president's power, and that the president must be able to at least provide some rationalization for his policies. We've also learned that our present laws give a U.S. president significant authority and deference to regulate our borders, which can potentially redefine U.S. immigration. And in these cases involving challenges to the president's suspension of immigration around COVID-19, we are also going to learn whether the courts give him similar deference where the justification is not necessarily rooted in national security, but more so in economic rationales. Now, this is not the first time we've seen an economic rationale for a president's actions on immigration. There are examples of this as far back as the Herbert Hoover administration just before or just at the start of the Great Depression in the 1920s. And in fact, such actions are so well known that there is actually a phrase that is used to describe them, known as the lump of labor fallacy. If you enjoyed this podcast, don't forget to catch our next episode where we'll explore the lump of labor fallacy. This podcast comes out next week. Thanks for joining us. This podcast was produced by the team at Audio Muses. Special thanks to Allison E. Harker and Amitha Ganatra.
Music for this podcast is from Audio Jungle. 